Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiridulwale. Thanks for joining us. The race for presidential tickets to contest the 2023 general election is now at fever pitch. With just a couple of days to the primaries where those candidates will be selected by delegates of the various parties. My guest says if elected, he will tackle Nigeria's many security challenges using digital technology as he has been able to do while governing his home state. My guest also says even though he isn't in support of strikes, the Academic Staff Union of Nigerian Universities, ASU, are right to demand better funding and learning infrastructure in the nation's tertiary education system. While also promising an overhaul of the federal civil service to improve service delivery, my guest is unhappy at institutional bottlenecks within the nation's growth and development processes, which he intends to handle frontally if he becomes president. Newsnight talks to All Progressives Congress APC presidential aspirant and governor of the South-South State of Cross River, Professor Ben Ayade. Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, we are looking at um, the political processes as they have unfolded over the last couple of weeks. Um, quite a number of people were shall I say, surprised, somewhere wondering what the game plan was when so many of you in the APC picked up the nomination forms. But I think uh, either directly or indirectly, the president has whittled down the list when he insisted that all those who were holding appointive offices have to withdraw from those offices to contest. Quite a number of people have since backed out after that. Does that give you any kind of comfort being one of those who is not affected, being that you are elected? Well, I don't fall in the category of those who are in appointed positions. And so it really doesn't, um, it doesn't fit in my circumstance. But if I had decided to run for the president of this country, and for any superior reasoning or argument or a technical or speculative calculation of my chances, and it looks quite slim in the circumstance of uh, my colleagues you're talking about, and they think it's better they hold on to what they've got at hand, I think it's simply being very self-preservative. There is, of course, the argument that that also now limits the field. Uh, there are not so many, it's not a packed field that, like it was anymore, which means that the wheat is being gradually separated from the chaff and the contest proper will be between a few of you, or fewer than initially thought. That's what I meant when I said, yeah. does it now clear the air for those you are wooing, those who are to vote? Well, yes, surely. And interestingly, the fact that a large number like that came out also shows how viable our party is, the APC. And if you look at the caliber of people, some of them may have just have stepped down out of respect for the president because having been with him for seven years, they think it's inappropriate to seek his office without his absolute blessing. And also, it's just the right thing to do and it's consistent with the provisions of our constitution. Your Excellency, in the case of Cross River State, you start off with, some might say, a bit of a hill to climb. Um, Cross River is looked at traditionally as a PDP state. And you, of course, were in the PDP. 
you won the first and even the second term on that, on that platform. And so those who were looking at it would say, when you moved to the APC, you created a bit of a hill to climb. And then now you want to be president on that platform, and you are starting from a state that is traditionally PDP. How are you hoping to maneuver through that? Well, exactly. Interesting enough, I couldn't, I couldn't have moved to APC if I didn't do my homework. What I did was that we had a traditional and classical uh, structure of people who were politicians at a certain age bracket. There was no inclusion for young people and women. And so the political class was stable for just too long, over 20 years, recycling the same generation of people. So there was an internal pain almost getting into kind of a bloscopic cataclysm of some sort. So there was a growing need for us to actually change the paradigm and create opportunity for the inclusion of young men. So when I came into office as governor of Crossover State, I expanded the corridor and allowed the ingress of young people, making commissioners who were under the age of 35, bringing young people into office, expanding government from an embargo of 35 years embargo on job uh, uh, employment, I lifted the embargo, created jobs for thousands of people, expanded political appointments, commissioners from 13 to 39, filled with young people under the age of 30, having commissioners at the age of 25, 28. So obviously, I brought in new blood. So there was new political kinetics, which required the level of agility that PDP was not giving us that momentum. Obviously, looking at what was happening nationwide and the growing fear that the tension was enveloping the country and the narrative of all press and all the radio stations were just focused on the insecurity, the attack of the police station, the killing of the army people. It looked as if the civil unrest was going to consume this country. So I needed to move to stand with the president, knowing consciously also that what I have done is that I have reconstructed the political demography of Cross River State, equipping me with the opportunity to move and still hold the balance. And that's what I've done. And so it also behoves on me to do the calculation properly. Cross River State, perhaps, is one of the, is the lowest in terms of revenue allocation in the country. It's a peripheral state, depending on traditional uh, uh, tourism which does not put food on the table. So having expanded government, bringing in thousands of young men, about 18,000 appointments, a social security program of 30,000 for somebody who is not working monthly across the, every family kindred in the States, it became clear to me that this was the right way to go. So while I focus on industrialization, I put food on the table. And now I could see the aspiration, the excitement, uh, the, the kaleidoscope of young energy stimulating to get involved and participate in a democracy. So I saw that that space was available for me, took advantage of the space, knowing also that on a strategic long-term basis, uh, this ambition to be president was there. And I know that I cannot come from opposition. So obviously, I cannot come from uh, a geopolitical zone like the South-South, coming from the kind of income and economy that I inherited, to launch a presidential adve ad uh, adventure. I call it adventure because of the circumstances of Nigeria. The factors that qualify you to be a president are the factors that disqualify you politically. So it's a, it's a huge adventure of some sort. So I knew that I prepared enough base, and I knew that once I moved, 
the political scale will move in my favor. And that's what I've done. And if you check today, statistics show clearly that Cross River State indeed has a footfall that is absolutely an APC state. Which would presuppose that your movement not only was strategic for you as a politician, but was also strategic for the state. Because I remember that when you moved, one of the things you said was that you also wanted to move to the mainstream. Uh, and that was even before your presidential bid. Yes. Uh, that presupposes that you were also looking towards how the state would benefit from being associated with the center. Thank you very much. And perfectly so, too, because I realized that the two major projects, which I indeed integrated, the Bakasi Deep Sea project with an evacuation corridor, the 270 kilometer superhighway from the Bakasi Deep Sea port to, Atlant to the northern part of Nigeria, that major project was beyond the carrying capacity of the state. But don't forget, any visioneer, any leader whose ambition can be achieved in his lifetime, his, thoughts, his ambition or vision will not be enough. I would rather aim high and miss than aim low and hit. So I had this big vision of having a six-lane superhighway connecting northern Nigeria to the Atlantic Ocean by so doing, bringing the Atlantic Ocean closer to northern Nigeria so they can have the keys of the maritime corridor so that we can have proper export of the agricultural produce, huge mineral resource belt, which is up in northern Nigeria, to be able to evacuate all of that and earn agro-dollar as well as solid mineral dollar. That computation and calculation will not fit you when I come from the opposition, as it were, against the center. And socketing onto the center also, to me, was a great opportunity to get the federal government to support us as a state to bring the Bakasi Deep support into reality. Given the fact that as today, we have only one domain, the maritime domain through which we can have access properly in commercial terms to Nigeria, is only through Lagos. So even the Lagos state governments have started crying out that there's too much con congestion in Lagos port, which is affecting the city itself. So if calling on federal government to please approve as many ports as possible. Indeed, my colleague Ed Rufai had said, even 20 ports will still not be adequate for this country. And so I knew that I needed to move to the center to be able to attract that patronage, knowing how difficult it is to get a sovereign guarantee, which is the minimum requirement for me to get the guys to move to the field to start construction. So I moved with a sincerity of purpose, committing myself to the president to support, reduce the tempo of temperature, the heat, and the potential uh, danger that was besetting us as a nation at that time, and also to take my state along, socket to the center, so that we can benefit from the possibility of setting up this Bakasi Deep Sea Port, which will turn Calabar as the next Lagos waiting to occur. I'm happy you mentioned the superhighway and um, the deep sea port. Uh, since we arrived, um, I had been asking questions. And because I remember that when you flagged off the superhighway, there were a couple of things you said. And then a couple of months later, I remember either it was an interview or a briefing you gave where you said there were some challenges with some of the communities. Uh, through which the, right uh, the, the road was envisaged to pass. And that they were putting up some quotes at the time, unreasonable demands. So I think, if I remember correctly, you even put up some figures that they were yeah. saying they wanted to be paid in order to allow government access to the road. 
So I guess the question to ask then is, given the plan that you had in mind with the deep sea port and this superhighway, where is that project today? Uh, the project has suffered tremendous setback. But the good news is that we have also made such a huge progress. And remember, again, this kind of project, the Lekki Port, for example, the concept of the Lekki Port was 27 years ago. It's just about now that Tolaram Group and, of course, other partners have been able to come together with partnership with China Harbor to get the Lekki Port where it is. But it was a dream that started 27 years ago. Unfortunately, in our country, with the debt of infrastructure, one would have imagined that the bottleneck processes towards getting approvals would have been reduced to the barest minimum to allow for the fast tracking of infrastructure. The superhighway itself suffers the setback of having the right of way. Um, of course, you know the Land Use Act, which vests the land on the governor, and I'm the sitting governor. One would imagine that my, trust, my access through transversing the entire state to be able to establish the right of way, which was just a 70 meters width of corridor. Uh, it couldn't have been faced with such steep opposition. We had situations where people would run to the front of the, of the route and set up rituals, shrines, just to be able to uh, take money out of government. Unfortunately, we didn't have that much money. We have communities where they will stop work and ask for billions as a compensation for us to proceed. Remember that we operate in a political climate, so you can also apply the full wrath of the law to say, look, I'm the governor, I hold this land in trust for the people, I therefore have the right to take, particularly for public good. So you need to manage and relate with the communities patiently. That took a lot of time to establish right of way. But what was more dramatic is the environmental impact assessment. To get the approval, we had petitions from over 80 international organizations, all funded and supported by what you would call political openness, just to discredit the project. So it took the president himself to physically intervene. After three years, the Ministry of Environment, that is federal government, took cross state government to court. But the provisions of the Constitution, the provisions of the EIA Act says that where you are embarking on a major infrastructural project that requires an environmental impact assessment, where you fail to do that, the fine will be a sum of one million naira. So for us as a government, and for me, a professor of environmental science, knowing the provisions of the law, I, I knew that since 1984, that act has not been amended. So the penalty is one million. So I'd rather pay the penalty of one million and progress with my job than spending multi-millions. More so that I know that the environmental management plan, which is the active life document that you are going to extract from the EIA to give you a management plan on how to deal with all the spoils that are associated with your major excavation and clearing works was taken into consideration. I had already taken care of that, but the, the, the government took us to court, stopped the work, so for three years we were in and out of the court. Even after we eventually won, it was difficult to remobilize until the president himself stepped in to require and request that they need to give us approval. So we just got the approval after three years. And that delay is occasioned by the insensitivity of this country to realize that that project was a life project. It was a sensitive project and actually registered for the EIA on the 9th of May. 
I was sworn in on the 27th of May, which tells you that I started committing myself to this way, believing that in eight years, there's no way I won't finish this way at Deep Sea Port. That's why I started it even before my swearing in. But little did I know that I was in a country called Nigeria, where I thought the powers of a governor were so absolute that I would just come in and just set out my right of way and start the debushing. Now, that's on, on, on one part. The debushing process itself, the bill we got was minimal to design the route, establish the route, was over 60 billion naira as charged by an international multinational company. So we knew that that was impossible. So we had to go with China Harbor, I mean, China Road Construction Company, that did the design. I had to go to China, meet with them, came in here, and did every 30 minutes to take soil studies, soil studies to be able to establish the design apart from the overfly with aircraft. Having done all of that, we've established the route, the, short, the shortest line between Bakasi Deep Sea Port and Northern Nigeria. That route was established on Google. We did the grand routing and took the every 30 meters mark and now prepared the profile. And so we did the stratigraphic profiling as well and took our right of way. Having done that, we took the corridor of 30, 35 meters is actually the width of the road, but because we had provision for a rail line for bulk uh, cargo. We also made a provision for additional 35 meters. So we have a corridor of 70 meters wide by 270 uh, meters wide by 275 kilometers. And all of that has been cleared and debushed. Right now we have a company that is doing all the culverts and bridges across the superhighway. We have done all the clearing and we are at the concluding phase with a company that CPCS of Canada that is sourcing a financier to be able to finance the final commencement of the construction phase of the work. But in terms of earthworks, we have made appreciable progress. If you come from the Calabar axis, we have studied, we have done the sub-base and we have done stone base to a large extent. And you can see, and I, can, I would like to drive you there so you can actually have the picture of the superhighway in the making with all the stone base already in place. So there's tremendous progress. On the Bakasi Deep Sea Port itself, we have done and completed the bathymetric survey. We've got the EIA approval. The certificate is available, we can show to you. We have finished all the survey and finished all the designs. I know the 1,850 piles for us to do the piling. There are geolocations already precisely defined. And we have the pre-stressed concrete factory set up in Akampa to produce the precast, the piles, which will be used to actually deepen and prepare the foundation for the key wall to rest on. All that has been completed. So where we are now is just at the point of just driving down the piles and casting your slab, and there you have your port. Of course, you can't do this without having a consultant who will networking with the British Admiralty, because your seaport must be locked into the International Admiralty chart for you to have uh, uh, a place where vessels will accept to come to bed and you won't have a big name behind the construction process. So in spite of the fact that I know it's something I can do, because what is a seaport? It's a garage where ships mark. And what do you need? It's just cement. We have Lafarge here that has uh, over 5 million metric tons per annum factory here in Calabar. So we basically could rely on our relationship with Lafarge to get subsidized cost of concrete, particularly if we're using pre-stress uh, piles. We know that we have to have sulfate-resistant concrete to be able to produce piles that can stay in the saliferous waters like the Atlantic Ocean for years to come.
we're quite prepared. The factory is ready to produce these pre-stressed concrete piles. So fully ready, and I can take you to Akankpa, and you can see the you can see the factory in readiness for work. So, I mean, this is seven years, and where I am now in terms of uh, the the outline business case and the full business case, which is a final requirement for the Federal Executive Council to approve officially the Bakasitip support, we are at that concluding phase, and we choose the best consultant, one of the best consultants in the world, CPCS of Canada. And this was done by the Federal Ministry of Environment. And we have presidential approval and eight ministerial approvals to get to where we are in seven years. It's really outstanding. But to say that this must be accomplished within my tenure, I, I, it's, that's wrong. And that's why I'm working hard to put a successor who will have very little to do with about innovating new projects, but focus on bringing the Bakassi Deep Support to reality. That's the biggest single project that can bring hope to this country. Many of the problems that you've talked about, the challenges that have come with many of these projects in your capacity as governor, when you become president and you want to put in place a vision, uh, one of my guests who sat where you are sitting now, uh, Bishop Kuka, said, go and bring an angel and make him president of Nigeria. Provided he has to work within the system that is currently in place, his chances of success are zero. And I know he's not the only one who thinks like that. They talk about the fundamental thing with the system and not the capacity of the leader. Now, if you become president of Nigeria, um, broadly speaking, I mean, without even going into the nitty nitty gritty, how are you going to change that perception? Because a lot of people already say that, look, it doesn't matter. So many people have tried. We've had so many intelligent people. Mm -hmm. We've had so many brilliant people. But once they get into the position, and then they immediately get surrounded by the usual civil servants in the villa, the people who have been forever in charge, and so on, things become impossible to accomplish. So how, how is yours going to be different? And that uh, Bishop Koka's analysis is perfectly correct. When I came in as governor of Cross River State, I swore that under my watch, I was going to exterminate every cash roof in Cross River State. That I was born into poverty, so I've seen poverty. I got early wealth, became very prosperous at a very tender age. And that because I've conquered poverty in my private and family life, that I could reproduce it in public life. So I would not have one touch roof in Cross River State. So immediately I got in, I set up a factory just to put, produce the roofing sheets, the block factory, and everything has to do with producing or building a house. But I can tell you, bureaucracy and stories, domestic theft and unreliability of the public service to help you administer that processes through you have one story here and there. Two, the public service as structured today does not provide for a discipline, does not provide, uh, does not provide for effective service delivery. So the public service is seen as the job creation program, not for value addition, but creating employment. The same mistake we make in agriculture, seeing agriculture as a means of creating job. If I become president, First thing I need is a major surgery and restructuring of the civil service. 
we must first of all reduce the amount of physical human beings involved in program processing. And you don't throw people out of job in a third world economy as a form of restructuring. You only divert such energy into a productive sector. I can imagine how sad it is when you find coppers being posted to uh, places like the civil service and they tell you they stay from morning to night every month doing nothing. They just show face to hide their name and leave. Same thing, you go to a civil service, you see people doing benesid or doing uh, egusi and just running time to waste and just get salary at the end of the month. And so there is a total collapse. The, the, the discipline that characterizes the days of the soldiers and the rest, where the civil service was a pride of the nation, it's gone. And where is the, what's the problem? It's the dysfunctional structure of the family unit system where a child at the age of two, the parents have already sent the child to go to school. The child has not bonded, is not trained in the family ethics and morality. A little child is already just two years old, is going to kindergarten. Before you know it, the child is already in secondary school at the age of nine. Before you know it, the child is a graduate in the university at 19. A little child is already a lawyer. Not realizing that that phase of family bonding is key. First step, Federal primary schools. Second step, there's a minimum age you must attain before you are allowed to depart from your family, before you leave your mother and father to say you want to go to school. You have to be at minimum age six before you can enter secondary school because there is no haste running you out and put you in a university graduate at 19 to come and meet an unemployment market with an immature attitude carrying a degree. Those days, we in Vesovibada, we pride ourselves that our degree is in character and learning. But today, it's just in learning. There is no character. So there is a failure. There is a systemic failure originating from a nucleic failure of family unit system. Father and mother are all working class people. So the child has to go to daycare, from daycare to uh, nursery, from nursery to second, losing touch with the parents lost the culture of respect. And that's why I still believe the Yoruba culture is one of the uh, most reverent. And I, and I see the kids still show this respect for elder. But if the society does not go back to where our real tradition and culture started, then we're going to be in trouble. When you have a broad vision, occasionally things leak. And, when, and I say that in respect of what you said about what you inherited and what you've been able to accomplish you know, in spite of what you inherited. But I remember that because, and I know that some of my viewers will remember that, very uncharacteristically, your magistrates protested at a point about this salary issue. You weren't in, I believe, at the time when the actual protest happened, and I can't recollect ever mm -hmm. actually hearing from you what eventually happened. But I believe it was resolved somehow because we haven't seen them since then. What was that about? What happened? No, what happened was that I was out of the country. And when I got back, I was told that some people said they were magistrates and that they were hired by the state government and that they were not paid. So I called the chairman of the Civil Service Commission and said, how did you do recruitment? that I did not authorize. There's a procedure to recruit somebody into the state civil service. Uh, there has to be a memo originating 
from the head of service to say there's a vacancy that occurred that needs to be filled. It has to go through the internal audit to find placement. They have to go through my SA uh, admin to ensure that there's value for that space being created. It has to come through me to get an approval in terms of the budgetary provision. It has to go to the State House of Assembly to warehouse that provision in a budget. Then there will be a proper official red pen signature from the governor authorizing the recruitment process, just like we did when we were recruiting for Suburb, for the primary school teachers. Here one day somebody said, oh, they have been recruited by Civil Service Commission the Defense Civil Service Commission before the new chairman came in and said there's no record to show that. So sorry, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer. You know that you cannot force an employee on an employer. And the reverse also is true. So I did not engage you as a magistrate. I've just employed 30 lawyers in the Ministry of Justice. I've just employed 2,500 teachers in the primary school. I've just absorbed all part-time workers in the civil service, including waterboard and CRGIS. I'm already saturated. My saturity is up here. I have no provision. Besides, you cannot hire a magistrate when you have not provided accommodation, an official car, and a policeman, and orderly. The requirements for the noble profession of the bench does not require justice to provide salary. So we are not in a position to recruit you because whatever letter you got, as for employment was illegal because the due process was not carried out. So you are not in the service because you did not have appropriate authorization. And then you go, you go, go parading the streets, and I'm like, you want, to, you, are, you want to be a magistrate, and you start by disobeying the law? You go on the street as a potential magistrate, and then the acting chief judge of the state, even in writing, to me that these people who purport to be magistrates are already going around in local courts and collecting money from people. But then the other part of this, of course, since we're talking about the judiciary, and this didn't make you, I noticed that you have quite a number of uh, uh, females in your government uh, at very important levels. Um, but uncharacteristically, and I use that word again, uncharacteristically it emerged at a point that the person whose turn it was to be the uh, next chief judge of Cross River became a bone of contention. Uh, and then the House of Assembly said she was a security risk. And then as a result of that, of course, they passed a resolution asking you not to confirm her appointment. That puts you in the crosshairs of the women uh, within politics uh, because they thought, ah, why? This one is not even political. This one is merit-based. Uh, and I, I, I raise it because several people who I told I would be speaking to you said they want to hear from you what happened exactly with that okay. chief judge matter. Again, it's a thing of the past. And, and yes, of course, she was to, subsequently confirmed. Uh, yes, to bring to bring back the details and the old wounds will hurt. Uh, it's it's one low moment of uh, my administration. It's simple. The the constitution provides that a state has a responsibility under the State Judicial Service Commission to propose a potential chief judge to the NJC. Right. NJC will recommend such a person to the governor. Yes. 
the governor will transmit the recommendation of NJC to the State House of Assembly. The State House of Assembly will appoint, will confirm the, appointment. the, the recommendation and the governor will appoint, which means the constitution provided the role for NJC, for the governor, for the House of Assembly. In the wisdom and provision of the constitution, if it thought that the power of appointing a chief judge lied exclusively with NJC, then there would never have been any provision for the governor to appoint or for the House of Assembly to confirm. But the tradition today is that once NJC makes a recommendation, it becomes binding on the governor that it's either you accept that recommendation or they don't give you an alternative recommendation. That was not the intent of the law. So here is a situation where in the history since the creation of this state, a certain part, the northern part of this state has never produced a chief judge. This has got nothing to do with whether a man or a woman chief judge. So you have two people who were sworn in the same day into the bench and as it were, I simply just thought that my House of Assembly, when I issued a letter to them, raised concerns that, oh, we, we thought that for 30-something years plus, the northern part of the state had not produced a chief judge, which is, I think, in the wisdom of those who crafted the constitution, may have thought it wise for all this balancing. That's why they said NJC will recommend, the House of Assembly will confirm, and the governor will appoint. So these three people must come together to arrive at who a chief judge is. So when he went to the House, and members of the House will say, oh, sorry, this section have produced chief judge for this number of years. Why don't you consider the other side? Just for equity's sake. It was on the spirit of that equity that when the House of Assembly refused to confirm, and I found it difficult to appoint. It wasn't, it wasn't an issue of gender. And not at all. Okay, so the, and so the, when it the, became the clear, women folk should actually let go of your neck. No, they are not on my neck because <laughs> I have appointed the highest number of women into appointments in the history of Nigeria. Yes, my secretary to government is a woman. My chief judge, incidentally, the best chief judge I've had is a current chief judge, the same uh, woman. The, the same she, woman. She turns out to be my number one. Absolutely. She's, she's done more for the state than any other chief judge in terms of securing more perseverance into uh, the bench. She's done magic. She's done very well in NGC. She's now a member of the NGC. She's playing an active role. She heads subcommittees. She's adding value to the state. She's renovating courts that otherwise were moribund. And we have a perfect and fantastic working relationship. I believe in women. It was absolutely an issue of equity, fairness that there was a discrimination, as it were, perhaps, against a certain sector part of the, of the state. And where my reason to struggle on the basis of equity failed, on the altar of politics, or issue of seniority in the bench, I, I, I had to let it be. Because as it is today, uh, without agency, you cannot do any appointment of any sort. And, and I can't end this interview without talking to you about the, what some have described as the existential threat that the nation faces. And if you are eventually selected as your party's candidate and you win the presidency, it will be the very first thing you are going to be faced with. 
and that is our security situation. As you and I sit here speaking, there are people who had been uh, kidnapped since March 28th from the Kaduna Abuja train uh, and are still in custody. There are people like that in various parts of the country. Yeah. Um, a lot of people who ordinarily would have loved to enjoy the scenery of traveling by road from one location to exactly. the other have put that aside and decided that anywhere that is worth going, they have to fly uh, in the hope of avoiding. What do you think is wrong? How, how, are we going about tackling this the wrong way? Or is it, simply, is, it, is it simply that it's not a question of strategy, it's a question of the will to face down these people? Because many of the band, so-called bandits and terrorists, apparently their locations are known. People exactly. know where they are. People follow them. People go and sell them fuel and bread and so on. And so people know where they are. The question would then be, is it the willpower that the armed forces or the security agencies lack because they are reading the body languages of the leaders. The security implication of the failure of this nation to aggressively focus on youth employment is that they are available for recruitment. And that's why recruitment by Boko Haram is very easy to have. That's why you can see a small incident turn into a full-blown fire. Because you see thousands of young men coming out and as the unemployment level increases, population rises. They have a direct, not an inverse relationship. The higher the poverty level, the higher the population. So again, if you, if you put all of this together, it means that an incoming president must understand the international dimension of our security challenge from the economic perspective and the security perspective. And must know that the manual and mechanistic warfare and the approach today has to give way for a modern technology-driven approach, which means a satellite photogrammetry on all our areas, particularly our border zones that are under threat, with the support of military intelligence support system from countries that are insensitive to the desire of our mineral belts. Those who have no appetite on our mineral belts, like Turkey, like Israel, they are the people that we need a defense pact. A small country like Cameroon, Nigeria can't go to war with Cameroon because Cameroon has a defense pact with France. But I'm advocating for a non-occupation defense pact, which means they don't have to have a base, but they can share military intelligence. They can supply us drone technology to support us to be able to police our borders from a satellite management system. Unless you deploy technology, unless you partner with an international uh, organization that has this satellite technology and capability, if we continue to depend on the manual approach of policing our border with an infantry style, we're in for a big challenge because there is an internal conspiracy which is arising from the fact that some of the Tuaregs, people from Mauritania, Senegal, Mali and the rest, are being paid about $120 a week. The only occupation, the business they have, come into Nigeria, kill, the communities run away, we come in, exploit the minerals, and take off. So, and these countries are known within the security circle. That's why I said our known aligned status has to be reviewed. We have to have an alignment. Even if it's not economic, at this point we need a security alignment. You can't, you don't have technology, you don't have a sufficient economic power, and then you are non-aligned. And then you are the giant of Africa.
And I'm assuming you get, you have all this security information, of course. I've been a governor, you are the chief security officer in your state, but then you also attend uh, security briefings, uh, even nationally. Yeah. And I, I am wondering that if this security briefing is available to you, it must also be available to your colleagues. Of course. It's also available to the federal authorities. Of course, themselves. of course, of course. What is there to say you will be able to do something about it when it appears as if they haven't? Well, I think the thing has reached to a point of, uh, it has reached the maximum carrying capacity and the tolerance limit is beginning to wear out. So I think in the course of time, you will see a lot of action coming from the president, a lot. And trust me, if not much was going on, you won't have the situation we, we have. Since the collapse of Afghanistan, you would have seen a tremendous pressure on this country. Don't forget, because Nigeria, we have very short memory. Don't forget, before Buhari became president, we had Boko Haram flags in parts of this country, paying tax to Boko Haram, paying tax to terrorists. You have bombings in Abuja, our federal capital territory. Under the leadership of Buhari, we've been able to push these people back. But people don't judge you by your accomplishment, but only by your failures. In your capacity as a university lecturer, you've taught for many years, you've produced many students. Yes. But now you are in politics and decision-making, policy formulation. How do you see the situation with ASU? Because if you weren't in politics, you would be... You two yes, would definitely. Be, You'd be with them. Now. I wish I was with them indeed. How do you see the situation? Because for, if you take the last two years, about half that time, the students have not been in the universities, especially the ones owned by the federal authorities. Yes. They have been roaming around and possibly going by the analogy you gave us earlier, that may also have contributed to the, making it easy for them to be recruited by Mm -hmm. 419 gangs, uh, terrorist groups, and so on. What is to be done about that situation? If you become president, they will say you are one of them. So what they expect is that the 200 and something billion they expect every year for three or four years, they want you to give it to them. Very good. Sadly, for you to change a country and set it on a path of prosperity, education is key. And when it comes to education, the university education unlocks the potential of this nation. So it's a priority sector. Indeed, a minister of education is a super minister and should take a prime place in terms of budgetary provisions. Imagine in my days, as a science student, you go for practicals in zoology lab, you see all the samples and all the tissues, everything you need to study. If you're doing parasitology, histology, anatomy, you have all the practical classes. Indeed, your practical class used to constitute 30% of your examination and assessment. Absolutely. So imagine somebody today who is studying microbiology and that department does not have one functional microscope and you're giving a degree in microbiology for somebody who has never seen a functional microscope. 
So the university lecturers have a genuine pain. How would you produce a graduate of microbiology who has got no single clue on how to use a microscope? Who has not done a single practical class? How do you produce a medical doctor who has never had a cadaver to, to practice? This is the cry of the university lecturers. And I have found myself in that situation as a lecturer in the University of Ibadan, teaching advanced courses. If you are talking about immunology, vaccine production, courses that I teach, and a student has not seen an anticoagulant like heparin, you can't, you can't, you can't. But in my days, we have all of this in our practical class. So the shame that today you are a veterinary doctor graduate and you've never had opportunity to even go to anywhere that you, I mean, as a senator, I used to uh, be a key person in the education committee. I would visit the University of Abuja. I went to the uh, veterinary, uh, faculty of veterinary medicine. And I'm sorry to say, you'll be, you'll be sad. Animal science, well, okay, where are the animals? Agronomy, where's your farm? Look, the university is in a complete decay. What they demand, they deserve. I stand with ASO. I don't stand for the strike, but I stand for their demand. Governor Eddie, I can only say I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you. Uh, there will be many who will be rooting for you. Good luck with Thank you. this. Thank please you so much. Please pass a message to my party. I use every platform we have to please talk to our leaders that the choice of a president should not be measured by the indices that seem to play in our political economy today. Indeed. Let the choice be by strength of character, raw energy, and most importantly, passion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you so much for your time. All right. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye. Yeah.